so this is a, not a part of my planned introduction, um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of insight into something about how the sausage is made in a sermon so that I could sort of orient us toward what I'm doing. Uh, normally, I have my sermons planned uh, for a year out, and then they're written two weeks out, and then that creates some tension whenever there are events in our city or events in our nation that I feel like I want to address. Um, and yet, there has been this thing over the years that's been, I, I almost think, divinely orchestrated where uh, what I have written for a particular Sunday somehow coincides with what I feel like we need to hear. There, so this sermon will continue to go through 1 Corinthians. This sermon will continue to do some deconstructive work around the nature of love, but the major theme that I'm going to be addressing today is shame. And the reason I kept this is because I do think that in the middle of our grief, there are also all kinds of feelings of shame that accompany this, whether it's personal shame or it's shame related to our city or uh, even the people who are most directly victimized sometimes feel shame. And certainly, I think if we're going to talk about shame, I think there is a lot that's happening even with perpetrators that involves shame. And so I thought to talk about shame and love in a city and in a moment where our city is grieving um, still allows us to talk about the good news. I recently finished um, Amy Poehler's autobiography, Yes, Please, uh, in which one of the titles is, one of the chapters is titled Plain Girl Versus the Demon. The chapter opens with her saying, I hate how I look. This is the mantra we, uh, she's referring specifically to young girls, we repeat over and over again. Sometimes we whisper it quietly and at other times we shout it out loud in front of the mirror, I hate how I look. I hate how my face looks, my body looks, I am too fat, I am too skinny, I am too tall, too wide legs, or, my, or too, too wide, or my legs are stupid, and my face is too smiley, or my teeth are dumb, and my nose is serious, and my stomach is just being so lame. She goes on to refer to this voice of shame in her head as a demon, which I thought was interestingly religious language. She says, in fact, it is a very patient and determined demon who shows up in your bedroom one day and refuses to leave. You were six or 12 or 15 and you look in the mirror and you hear this voice so awful and mean that it takes your breath away. It tells you that you were fat and ugly and you don't deserve love. Though she is speaking specifically of the experience of young girls and women criticizing their physical appearance, I think this transcends as well out to men who feel the voice of shame in different ways. Sometimes men experience shame around their bodies, but often men feel experience shame around their own physical weaknesses or their own emotional vulnerabilities. And so no matter 
what it is we feel shame about, even our own feelings of weakness in our own city. I appreciate that she labels it a demon that uses words that tells us lies. And in particular, Polar says that the ultimate lie is at the root that we don't deserve love. What Polar calls the voice of a demon, and that is fully appropriate language, psychologists often call the voice of shame, and I am content to say it is a demon of shame. The power of the demon of shame is that it jumps from an observation to a value judgment. And then from the value judgment, it goes right back to the observation, only recreating it and reimagining it into something that is worse. Shame takes something that may or may not be true about us, and it tells us the lie that that thing makes us unlovable. Shame takes something that may or may not be true about us, and it tells us the lie that that thing makes us unlovable. I think about this when I read 1 Corinthians where Paul is writing this sort of poem or this song or this ode to love. See, Corinth is, in a, is a city where some scholars think mirrors were made. And so Paul is going to use this metaphor of an image, uh, uh, this metaphor of a mirror to talk about shame and love. And Paul has got people in his church who are looking in mirrors every day and they have this demon of shame staring back at them with unfair value judgments. And he's been addressing this really throughout the entire letter. You have people in this congregation who are incredibly poor and you have people in this congregation who are incredibly privileged and the root that they all share is shame. For the poor, the voice of shame is saying to them, you are just a slave. You do not deserve love. You are just a poor field hand. You do not deserve love. You're just a former prostitute in the temple. You don't deserve love. And in the wealthy in the congregation, to the socially powerful, they look in the mirror every day and they understand that even their social positions are threatened by the gospel and so they feel shame. Being wealthy in a city with so many poor people. They feel shame because they know they're wealthy in a church where people are hungry. They feel shame because they know that their family's wealth and generational wealth has been inherited through exploited labor. They feel shame because they want to be a force for good and equality in the world, but they're not comfortable being that when it comes right down to it. They feel shame, this congregation feels shame because they have left their wealthy families to follow this weird Jewish teacher who was killed by the Romans. They feel shame because they took a big financial hit when their new Christian faith called them to deal honestly with their creditors. They feel shame because they no longer fit in the intellectual milieu of Corinth because they follow a wannabe freedom fighter from Palestine who died foolishly on a cross. And all of this shame tells them that they too do not deserve Love. And this group, the socially powerful group, is trying to compensate for this shame 
by finding something, anything that they can boast in when they look in the mirror. Paul says they're boasting about how much theology they know. He says that they're boasting about that they can talk to angels. They're boasting that they have received prophecies directly from God. But all of this boasting is just one more way to hide the fact that they feel shame. Paul says that they're boasting when they look in the mirror and they boast. They're only reinforcing the power of the original value judgment. When you look in the mirror and you push out your chest, and you suck in your gut. And you don't smile for pictures because you're hiding your adult braces. All of this just reinforces the idea that you are not loved as you are. When you're taking that mirrored selfie and you can only do it at certain angles so it hides your double chin, You use certain filters to make your skin tone look darker or lighter. We mutually agree to lie to each other so that nobody will have to see the real me and I promise them that I won't acknowledge the real them. But all of this reinforces our shame. I love Jeff Calkins' article this week. I didn't see it, my wife sent it to me and I got to read it and I loved it because one of the things that he was essentially saying was, let's tell the truth about our city. Let's tell the truth that it's difficult to live here. Let's not hold up a false mirror and put filters on it that pretends that it's something it's not, but let's also understand that this is a city that's lovable, that both of those things are reality, that, that, that the city has broken components to it, and also it is still loved by God. As we say in our communion liturgy, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love for us. And so Paul is trying to deconstruct and deal with the shame of a very wide, economically, socially wide group of people who are dealing with shame in very different ways. Their shame isn't due to the same experiences because they don't have the same experiences. Their shame is not due for the same reasons because they have different reasons they feel the shame. But one group has been historically exploited and the other group has been historically exploitative. And Paul Paul lays most of the moral imperatives that he's going to give at the seat of the privileged. But he gives the same antidote to both. And I'm hesitant to talk about love as the antidote to both because love, particularly in dominantly white churches, is really about cheap cliches and stuff you, you, you put on your wall to, you know, just using... Bible verses about love here and there that are decontextualized and they don't have any root and they don't have any meaning. But I think if I've learned anything from the black church, if I've learned anything from reading Dr. King, it's that love is powerful. That love has roots and connectedness in a city and in a region and in a nation. And that love is the only thing that can fix this world. But it is going to take us moving past our cliches and our shallow understanding of love. It is going to take also us recognizing 
that we are loved even in the moments when we feel shame. The antidote to both is love. He says, listen, you can have libraries full of knowledge, but your knowledge is only ever going to be piecemeal. He says, listen, you, you, you love is going to last forever. You can be fluent in angelic languages and foreign languages, but you're never going to know everything. But love is fully knowable now. You can have communion with God and to receive direct divine revelations as God's prophet, but you will never have perfect revelation until love itself in the person of Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, the divine revelation you will receive will be the revelation of perfect, accepting love. Right now, I think both Individually and collectively as a city, we are kind of having this body dysmorphia moment where we're looking in the mirror and we say to ourselves, we move past an observation of what is to place a value judgment on it that says the city should be thrown away. My body is worthless. My experience is worthless. Who am I is valueless. My city is valueless. We are afraid to reflect and sit with those feelings and get at the root of them, the root of our fear and the root of our shame and the root of our anxiety. We are afraid to get the root at the root of them, lest they make us incredibly vulnerable. We believe that we are unworthy of love because of the distorted image of ourselves or our city staring back at us. But instead of puffing up our chest and holding the camera at the right angle, instead of giving ourselves sexy duck lips, Instead of flexing our muscles, instead of pretending to be someone we're not, love is an invitation to accept ourselves and other people just as they are. What if love is a reminder that there is one who sees us perfectly now in all of our flaws as individuals and as a city and still loves us? What if love is a promise that one day we will see ourselves and our city as that love sees us? We spend so much of our time pretending that we're something we're not because we don't believe who we are is lovable. And that is precisely why Paul is emphasizing the temporal nature of all of the things we value. The Corinthians valued knowledge and divine revelation and angelic languages and we might value beauty and possessions and big audiences and getting a raise and having nice bank accounts or heck in the last week we just value having a house that we can be in and be safe in for a while and Paul says listen one day all of it is going to go away one day we will not be able to hide behind our shame anymore one day when Jesus will be returned we will be in the vulnerable position of being seen as we really are scared anxious grieving broken and loved we, in that moment, will also see ourselves as we are seen. 
But here's the good news. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news that Memphis needs to hear right now in all of our collective fear and shame and our individual fear and shame is that love is not just something we wait for. Love has broken into the present even now. Self-acceptance and the resistance of the demon of shame can begin right now. I remember one time my wife and I were early in our marriage and her grandmother was still alive then. And I think that I don't remember where we were going. Our family was all going somewhere. There was a big group of us. We were going somewhere. Maybe we were going to be late somewhere. And we're trying to rush her grandmother along. And her grandmother was like, don't rush me. I've got to go put it on my face. This was, I was like 24, 5 years old. I had never heard of someone having to put on their face. I didn't even know what that meant. And then she came out of the bathroom, and she was all kind of dolled up with makeup. And I was like, oh, her face, I see. I'm not preaching against makeup, and I'm definitely not preaching against her grandmother. But I thought it was interesting, I still think it's interesting that the real face we put on is the makeup face that pretends that we're stronger than we are, that we're doing better than we are. How many times even coming in here today, how are you doing? I'm good. Not good. City's not good. We feel shame. What does it mean that we're afraid to tell the truth about ourselves and our collective experiences together? So two weeks ago, I had my monthly therapy session. And... Um, we have been talking in my therapy section for months about the possibility that I may have ADD and that this has gone undiagnosed for 42 years. So we've been talking about this and she says, you know, hey, we're, we'll, we'll get you a psychological test uh, We'll get you tested for it. She's like, so I want you to go home. I want you to talk to your wife. I want you to talk to your wife about what it's like to live with you. I want you to talk with your employees about what it's like to work for you and see like, what are the different ways that, 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 that your people, your church, your family, the people you love have compensated for you with these limitations that might come along with it. And so I'm having all these conversations. I'm talking about it and I come back a whole month goes by. She doesn't send me a referral to see a, a psychoanalyst or whatever. And I was just like, okay, well, apparently, like, she just forgot. Like, I'm going to need to bring this up. And so I, I was like, hey, why, why didn't we have this, you know, testing done? And she said, you know, you seem to have figured out how to live with this thing. What if we don't do the testing? What would that do for you? And I was like, I don't know. I figure if, if we did, if we, at least if we did the testing, these you know, sort of weird things about me, like I, might, like I might have an explanation for them. 
I, would, I might feel better about myself. And she was like, right, but it doesn't change anything. She's like, what if, what if you just, and by the way, this is like months of therapy working to this point, right? She's like, what if you just said to yourself, I'm Tom first, and I'm not God, and I can't do everything, and I have limits, and one of those limits is that I have the characteristics of someone with ADD. I was like, acknowledge limits? <laughs> Who has limits? Because something about the way I have grown up, honestly, I, this is what I think it is. I think I grew up poor. I grew up first person in my family to go to college. And a lot of my adult identity has been built around that I don't have limits. I can accomplish anything with enough hard work. I can make it happen. But it's all coming out of shame. That I feel like I am a failure, that I am that poor kid growing up in rural Missouri if I don't succeed and if I don't make things happen. And so the question has stayed with me, what would it look like for you to lead with your vulnerabilities? And she said, listen, Tom, like ADD, for example, like it has gifts and weaknesses to like limitations to it she's like there are gifts she's like I know a lot of people who are like super smart who have ADD and their their ADD actually helps them make connections that other people wouldn't make so like there are gifts to this and lean into those gifts but recognize it comes with limitations too and that those limitations are okay because you are human Friends, the only way to deal with the demon of shame is not by avoidance. Avoidance only makes the voice stronger. The only way to deal with the demon of shame is to turn and face it and tell the truth about ourselves and our city, but to do it without the value judgment that says this makes me or us unlovable. I accept that I am loved by embracing what I see in the mirror without putting my face on. God embraces that second grader in me that still grieves his parents' divorce God embraces that fourth grader in me that still feels the wounds of two alcoholic parents. God embraces the fifth grader in me that went to school only to be mocked and then to come home with emotionally neglectful and abusive parents. God embraces the insecure teenager in me who compensated by being loud and obnoxious and having to be the big noise in the room because I felt like I would be forgotten if I didn't make noise. God embraces in me the guy that fears that he is not all he needs to be for his wife and his children or his church. God embraces the pastor in me 
that fears that one bad sermon will make you all go to another church. God embraces the associate pastor in me that for years and years was bitter because his bosses always wanted to harness him and control him instead of let him be free. So if God embraces those things in me, that I think it is time for me to embrace those things about myself. I am a bundle of paradoxes, people. Just like you are, just like this city is. I am a bundle of paradoxes, I believe and I doubt. I have hope and I get discouraged. I have loves and I have hates. I feel bad about feeling good, and I feel good sometimes when I should feel bad. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty enough. I am trusting, and I am suspicious, and I am honest, and I still play games. When Amy Poehler refers to that demon in the mirror, she writes as if it is an eternal being, something that is always there, that is always waiting to strike and destroy. But Paul says that everything, whether it's things we feel shame over or things we boast in because we might feel shame if we didn't boast, all of these things are temporal except for love. Holy love is eternal. And that, my friends, is exactly why we receive communion every week. Because it is a weekly reminder that the demon in the mirror is temporary. It is an ugly, hideous demon that is temporary. And in the ugly, hideous, broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we turn to that demon truthfully and we say... I am worthy of being loved because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I want to invite our communion servers up at this time. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord.